Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would give us faith. For Christ's sake, amen. Finally, a sermon on food, right? Some of you are like, I've been waiting. Never preaches on food. It's intriguing, actually, if you think about it, that there's a sense in which the Lord understands uh, the special function that food serves in the lives of people. It's intriguing. In fact, actually, when you think about it, it shows up in the very beginning of the story, doesn't it? The very beginning of the garden. That's what happens. Eve is tempted. She's uh, confronted with the devil. He's very, very clever, misconstrues God's word, and she's Overcome with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, and she eats. And all of humanity is ruined, save one. It's intriguing how you can actually look in the book and uh, throughout the Bible, food shows up and it shows up serving this kind of function so often and regularly as a marker of people being together an opportunity to spend time together. You think about in the early fathers of the church uh, in the Old Testament, the patriarchs, you see interactions where angels would appear in their midst and they would immediately fix a feast so they could fellowship together. It's almost like the Lord knew what he was doing because he's designed us to think of food as serving in some fashion, uh, this function of being a coordinator, uh, an endeavor that we can all kind of get behind together and spend time and energy together doing and enjoying. I mean, think about it. Many of you, not all, but many of you, your family holidays are really just meals that you celebrate in different months. Right? Some of you, you have it actually down to what meals you eat, what foods you eat according to which holiday it is. Some of you, I know this to be true, this isn't from just the ether, you plan your vacations around your food. Because what's more relaxing than eating together in a different place? 
with things I can't normally enjoy. It's almost like the church should have the idea of food built into its philosophy of ministry. There's the laugh. I was waiting for it, right? <laughs> That's what we're doing this evening. It's, it's what we do as a part of the ministry here. It's designed that at least twice a month we get together as a body and we share food. Because it's like we're designed to be together around a table. It's intriguing that there's two sacraments in the Old Testament and two sacraments in the New Testament and one of each of them centers around food part of the very nature of how God teaches His people. In fact, all of it pointing to an even better meal coming in the future. So it's important to understand, kind of even as we think about what we're talking about in this passage, is really preparation for the table we're about to eat. It's a meal, a family meal, a family feast together. In fact, that's what's in process in the middle of the passage. We're jumping in into the middle of uh, their family feast already. The Passover feast was a tremendous opportunity for households to enjoy the presence of God together. I've been saying it for a couple of weeks now, but again, it is important to remember the Jews knew how to party, right? They did it right. This was a week-long feast, but had one specific day that kind of everything was cut loose, and it was a grand old party. Certainly sober in its content, but huge in its scope. There in the middle of this Passover feast, a lengthy meal involving lots of food, not all of it good, some of it intentionally unpleasant, lots of wine, taken over an entire evening as an opportunity to contemplate God's provision in the past, how he redeemed for himself a people through the exodus and taking them out of the land of Egypt, out to a mountain where he would know them and be known by them. We're jumping into the middle of that feast, and Matthew kind of clues us in on that as they were eating. It's in the middle of what's going on, and it's an entire conversation conducted as a family household about God's provision, about how God provides for His people. Our task today, as we look at this passage just briefly, I want you really to walk away with one kind of goal in mind. That you would think more highly of Jesus when we go to the table as soon as I'm done. That's a high bar for a sermon. You'd think more highly of Jesus as we go to feast with him in just a moment. They're in the middle of the meal. Again, a meal that's focused around a sacrificed lamb, a meal that's focused around God providing for his people, a meal that's focused around uh, the, the looming backdrop of slavery and the freedom from that that God has provided. 
And they've been in the middle of lengthy instruction. Jesus has spent roughly the last three days teaching them an immense amount of things. At this point, we get the impression that he's probably been teaching them for some four to six hours, best guess. A lot of things to remember. Amazingly, uh, they do because we have it recorded in Scripture. But in the middle of the meal, he kind of interrupts the standard flow of how things would go. And has what we might call a teachable moment. Now, it's certainly bigger than that. Here we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Glory, second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, remaking the nature of reality. Taking one sacrament and replacing it with another in a brief moment. First, he gives a command. Take, eat, this is my body. A command, an imperative, an instruction, a thing that you are supposed to do. The disciples sitting there in front of him would have understood very easily that as he had bread, he had broken it, he had given thanks. That was standard protocol for the day. Gave it to them to eat. And again, you think that it's in the middle of a meal where food is given this way uh, in reminding them about what God has done in the past. That's how this meal operated. It was a meal where various kind of uh, ritual elements were performed, but remembering the things done coming out of Egypt. Jesus, however, changes it. It's not take and eat. This is God's provision in the past. It's not you take and eat and and be nourished on the fact that God took care of his people 1,500 years prior. Give or take 30 years. No, what's happening here is not a past tense feast but a present and future. Take and eat, not God's provision in the past. Not take and eat and remember what He Himself has done. Not take and eat and contemplate all of the good things that God has done to you. Instead, it is a command to take and eat and feast upon Christ Himself. That's the command. That's actually the command for you. It's no different. I'm going to give instruction in a few moments when we go to the table. I'm going to tell you the same thing. Taste and see that Christ is good. Feast upon him. Now, it does beg a question, okay, what is he he doing and what does he mean? You actually look at this and we can see he says, take and eat. That's the command. We've got that. But this is my body as he's holding bread for them. And there's clear instruction, I think, for this. We know where his body was. In fact, none of the disciples would have had any questions about it. If you'd asked anybody in the room, where is the body of Jesus, they would not have said, in the bread. They would have said, sitting right there. They could see him. He's in their midst. In fact, actually, they are indeed having communion with Christ, union with him, fellowship with him, sharing food with him. Instead, 
They would not have perceived his words as being literal in any fashion in this regard. Certainly the command to take and eat would have been. But not that his, the bread is his actual body. That would have been weird with his actual body sitting a couple of feet away. Instead, they would have understood it, and it's correctly understood, that his body is spiritually present in the bread. And it's not physical, it's spiritual. In fact, his body is still human. That hasn't changed. It's a glorified human body, but one of the essential properties of being human is to be in one place at one time. Now, I will have to say, this is one of the parts of being human that irritates me. I would love to be in multiple places at the same time. I would be so efficient. I get so much more done. Be at home doing chores, be in my office studying and reading books. Could hang out with you all at the same time. It would be fantastic. But that's not what it means to be human. That's actually what it means to be God. To be able to be in multiple places at the same time. Even the devil himself can't do that. The angels themselves are confined to one place and one time. Uh, only God is able to be more than that. Only God himself is able to be infinite. And Christ certainly being God, but not in his body, for his body is human. He is fully God, but his body is finite limited to one place and one time. And so here in offering to his people, he's offering something extremely important and something far better than simply his body. It's not like he's cutting off a piece of finger and handing it here, you eat this and then you eat that and then you eat and that's disgusting and foul and evil in all sorts of ways. Now what he's challenging them to is a, a greater reality that their souls would be fed on the person of Christ himself. That their souls would be fed. Now, some of you, you've been a Christian long enough that perhaps you don't remember what it feels like to be in the opposite situation. You don't remember the emptiness Right, that, that burning, cold emptiness that knows there is a giant hole inside. Many try to get rid of that hole by shoving other things into it to see if we can get it to stop being quite so empty. It's actually, I think, perhaps one of the greatest challenges to the church in our great nation is that we are so incredibly wealthy, so incredibly blessed that we have all kinds of resources to throw at the emptiness inside. That it can take decades or perhaps even a lifetime to exhaust them all. In seminary, I remember watching Martin Bashir's um, documentary on Michael Jackson. And I, I think it was one of the most traumatizing but theologically enriching things I've watched, just from a kind of a non-Christian perspective. 
Uh, Brashear, who's probably no great friend of the church, had been given special access to Michael Jackson's life and, and was able to do all sorts of interviews. And it, you watched it and certainly didn't come away endeared toward Jackson in any way. But you came away with this just profound, overwhelming sorrow. Because here's a man who at five, six, seven years old had absolutely everything that the world could possibly offer and realized at eight that the hole was still there. And so having all that the world could offer, he tried to shovel everything into his heart that he possibly could to make himself feel better. He had go-karts in his house. His house was so big it took minutes to walk through, so go-karts for everybody to ride. So you have this weird moments in the documentaries. People are zipping around the house in go-karts indoors. Amazing. Jackson tells the story of one day waking up and feeling just profoundly insecure and lonely. Uh, And so in order to make himself feel better, he went out and bought the Beatles music. And I don't mean he bought the CDs or MP3s of the Beatles music. He bought the rights to the entire catalog, all of the Beatles music, to make himself feel better. Owning all of the music from the greatest band that's ever been. And he was still lonely. Still empty. A tremendous hole inside. What Christ is getting at is the corrective to that. Take and eat. Fill the emptiness inside, not with yourself. Feel the emptiness inside, not with your spouse, not with your children, not with your job, not with your money, not with your pleasures, not with your sexuality, not with drugs and alcohol, not with anything else. Fill it with Christ, the only thing that can fill that emptiness. That's why it's so significant. It's not just eat his body physically. That's disgusting and horrible. But it's actually, it's less than what's actually happening here. Christ is instead giving them an invitation to be united with him. So that their souls would be nourished by his very being and his very presence. Friends, if if you are in Christ today, this is what it means for you when you have communion, even really outside of that, but you are united to Christ in his humanity. That's why I love the end of Romans 8 so much. There's nothing inside of creation that can separate you from that. Even death itself cannot separate you from your union to Christ Jesus in his humanity. You are knit together. So when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when you pass through the veil of tears, when you're stuck in a hospital bed, or dreading the scary news that you know is coming, nothing can divide you from your Savior. And the reality here is that I imagine 
in a room of this size with the people that we have, maybe on YouTube later, I don't know. I don't know where the spirit blows and how he works and where he moves, but I imagine there's at least one in the room that understands the loneliness that I'm talking about. Right? You know you're running from it. You know. As you go to bed at night and you lay your head upon the pillow, you have to quiet that little voice that talks in the back of your head that wants to bring it up. A little quiet voice in the back of your head that wants to talk about the emptiness inside. And you continue to try to drown it out. If you're in that category, I would just give you a brief encouragement. You will never win. You can't make it go away. That little voice that's telling you about the emptiness inside, that's that's reminding you of that giant hole in your soul, that voice does not stop. It can only be replaced by Christ, where you hear his voice instead. If you find yourself in that situation, friends, I would encourage you. It doesn't have to be fancy, but ask Christ to work, to save, to help. It does not need to be pretty. Prayers most often are not. In fact, interestingly, the best prayers in Scripture that we have praised the most highly are the ones where they are mistaken for being drunk because they're so upset. Take, eat. This is Christ for you. Well, it seems too good to be true, actually. I mean, it's, if you're really going to pay attention to it, if you're going to think through the math of it, it seems too good to be true. How on earth could we have a promise like that? You mean the loneliness, the emptiness, the hole inside can be filled correctly? Verse 27, I think, 28 explain that further. The second command given to his disciples, thereby given to us, when he took a cup, he had given thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink of it. All of you, same command, right? Drink this time um, of the cup filled with wine. But now he gives further explanation, and this explanation is incredibly important. For this cup, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this again is incredibly important. Now, are they going to mistake the cup of wine for his actual physical blood? No. They know where his blood is currently. It's in the body that's sitting in front of them, talking to them, serving them the wine. They would have understood that. None of them would have thought, oh, physically, he just poured his blood out and then bleeds into the... No, nobody would have thought that. No, instead, being Jews, all of them, they would have understood his words here in verse 28 to be a reminder of the Old Testament that has gone before. It would have been a a going back even to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It would have been a, a going back to the way that God had interacted with the Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years. For he had been instructing them for years, again, almost 1,500 years, specifically in regards to this feast, that in order for sin 
to be dealt with, something had to die. Now, I mean, that's a loaded kind of sentence, I guess, but in terms of sin, I would go back and say that technical term, but really all that means is the bad things you've done or the good things that you haven't done. That's the functioning definition of sin in every sense. It's the bad things that you have done are doing currently, maybe the things you're thinking about me in your head right now, or the lack of good things. I love the lack of good things part of it because some of us in here are like, well, you know, I'm not a bad person. I mean, they are, but I'm not. Well, maybe, but you're certainly not a good person. (laughs) You may think you have the absence of bad, but you certainly don't have the presence of good. What's happening here is Jesus is explaining to them that this evil, the things that we have done, they deserve punishment. And in fact, the sins against an eternal God demand an infinite punishment, an eternal punishment. And that was laid out in the very beginning of creation, and it was laid out in the form of a covenant. That's where that word shows up. That's why he's identifying it for them. The blood of my covenant is the 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 relationship that God has with mankind, a promise that can never be be violated by God and never removed. So when he's offering them the blood, what he's offering them is a sacrifice that pays for their sin for their punishment, for their eternal condemnation. He's offering them mercy. He's offering them forgiveness. He's offering them grace. And I love how you get to see, even in this, he's kind of uh, foreshadowing what's about to happen in just a few short hours. He's offering them forgiveness at no cost to them. All they have to do is believe him and drink the wine. That's it. Just believe it and act on it. That's all all that they're doing. It doesn't cost them anything. They're not having to go buy the wine. It literally just takes belief to receive it. But he understands it's going to cost him everything. In a few short hours, he's going to be betrayed. That's where we get next week. That betrayal will manifest in the farce of a trial. You think some of the trials you might have watched over the last 20 years in this nation, you think they're bad. They're nothing like what happens here. Total joke. An innocent man is pronounced guilty and is murdered. In a rushed fashion, in the cruelest, nastiest, most hurtful and hateful way. So that he would be the sacrifice. Friends, he knows he's going to die. He knows how he's going to die. He's already told them that at the beginning of this chapter. What he's telling them now in the cup is that he plans to do it for them. When we go to the table in just a moment, you're going to have the same command given to you. Take and drink. 
I often say it, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's one part I like to emphasize. But the command is no less for you what it was for them that the challenge is for you to receive Christ as your payment for sin. The challenge is for you to receive the sacrifice that cleanses from evil. The challenge is for you to receive that which is greater than you. And this is where I think sometimes we struggle. Because some of us, honestly, we have a hard time admitting that there's anything bigger than me or anything better than me. Or something that might be more clean or or holy, more knowledgeable or good or true or right. I mean, I've been taught since I was little that I'm the center of the universe. I've been taught that since I was little I can be anything I want to be as long as I believe hard enough. And unfortunately, that lie has been perpetrated in my soul and I've been wrestling with this tension inside of the emptiness with the, the The lie that I can do whatever I want to do. I can be whatever I want to be. That's where we stand as a nation, a nation that's trying to be whatever they want to be, and we can't be happy. We lie all the time. We can't make it right. We're the most medicated country in world history. And I don't mean that medicated in the sense of like cancer treatments and things like that. I mean that in the sense of antidepressants and sleep aids in an effort to try to shut the voice up before we go to sleep. Because we can't. We can't. That's the beauty here again of Jesus identifying that this is the blood of the covenant, that it's a promise that is fixed and firm and true and trustworthy and reliable and nothing inside creation can change it. It is the gospel, the good news, accomplished. Again, if you're you're listening and you're going, I don't, I don't know exactly what that means. Perhaps it's new to you. Perhaps you've listened a long time, actually. You've been in the church a while, but you know you've been lying. And you're listening thinking, man, that sounds too good to be true. And that actually is absolutely 100% the reality of it. It's too good, but it is true. And I love how the response that is given to the disciples is the same sort of response that is required of us. It's not, go be a good person. Peter literally has his worst failure in his entire life one verse after this. Literally betrays the Messiah. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean a good person. No, what it means is that you you believe the promise is yours. That Jesus dies for you. You You're not believing that generically. Friends, you realize that's what the devil does. He believes that to be true. He believes 
that Jesus went to the cross for people. He believes that. So some of you in here, your knowledge, it agrees with the devil, but it doesn't go any further to say that I believe it for me. That when Christ promised the blood of the covenant, it's for me, it's mine. That nothing can separate me from God's love, that I am his. And he is mine. That's a pretty good deal. It doesn't stop there. It's even more amazing. He shares the cup with them. I suspect drinking with them. It's not entirely clear. Verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And this is If this is the only passage of the Bible that you've read, you would think that does not make a lot of sense. Fair enough. It actually requires the context of the entire ministry of Jesus and ultimately the entire Bible itself. But what Jesus has been saying all along is his his speech has been repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he means with that is that uh, God is in the process of raising up a kingdom of people, of his people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Throughout time, he's redeeming for himself a people. And that's going to be accomplished on the cross in just a few hours. But it doesn't stop there. And in fact, it even builds until the end of time. When Jesus comes back, not at that point to come to a cross, but to come to the throne of judgment where he sits, to sit in the throne of a king. What he's telling them this here is that he is their teacher. He is the one who has been traveling with them for a number of years at this point, but that's not all he is. He is the Lord of glory himself. And he is and will be victorious. I love thinking about how the disciples would have understood this. Again, remember, they remembered this part very clearly. It's written in a number of places in the scriptures. He says to them, I'm not going to celebrate this with you again until I'm in my Father's kingdom in, in totality in some sense. And to think about, they would hear that promise and go, that's odd. I mean, okay, great. I can't wait to see your kingdom come. And then he dies, you know, the next day. Um, how are you going to keep that? I mean, you said we're going to do this again. How are you going to keep that? I mean, you're dead. And he was. He just didn't stay that way. It actually is that same reality for us where now we can say, hey, you know what? He didn't stay dead. In fact, he didn't even stay on earth. He ascended into glory. He's currently sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But we too can participate in this feast looking forward to the day where we are all united together. 
Looking forward to the day where I get to eat it with Christ in total victory, fully accomplished, fully applied. Having Peter sitting at the same table, and John, and David, and Abraham, and Ruth, and Esther, and God's people that have gone before, and my family members and friends that I miss that have passed on to the life to come. But we're in Christ. What he's giving them here is a promise that when they go through the hard times in a roughly 24 hours, when he dies, that they will know it, it, death doesn't win. That's not where the story stops. Jesus promised we would do it again. And though he's dead, we will be victorious. For he will be victorious. Friends, some of you are in that situation now, I know. Where you're struggling with God's promises. Because you know that he has promised, but the darkness seems, it feels so real. Overwhelming, oppressive. And if you're in Christ, I tell you, Jesus has promised we will feast together in victory. Even if death gets you, it will not win. I love to think about that. Death wasn't strong enough to hold Jesus. And because it wasn't strong enough to hold Jesus, it's not strong enough to hold me. If I die, I'm not going to stay that way either. Now, I'm not going to be resurrected three days later, unless Jesus comes back three days later, and then I would, but you get the point. Victory is sure. And again, for those of you that are sitting in here wondering, what, what on earth, how, what is this? Is this? Is this really the truth? Yeah, this is what the church has been about for thousands of years. The entirety of the Old Testament was the foreshadowing of that victory. The entirety of the New Testament is the proclamation of that victory accomplished, though not fully applied, and looking forward to the end of time. In fact, actually, when we get to the table, we, we have kind of three different time elements to it. We're looking back at the crucifixion of Christ, remembering his death. We're contemplating the present where we're, we're united with Christ, where we're strengthened by Christ, where our souls are fed upon Christ, but even more so looking to the future until he comes again. And these blessings which are now shadows become bright and clear realities. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of emotion to have to deal with. And some of you, you've been at this long enough that sometimes those emotions maybe run a little cold. I would encourage you, it's time to stir them up a little bit. Perhaps some of you, you don't understand what I mean, and I'm not mad at you. Instead, I would encourage you, come talk to me or talk to one of the elders. You might even be in that position where you think, I want to have that, but I just don't know how. 
And honestly, pastoring a church in the South, the, the, the more common reality there is that you know you've been pretending, but you're just too embarrassed to admit it. I've been in church all my life. My friends, you can go throughout church history, particularly if you go to, to England and read in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, read dozens and dozens of stories of pastors being converted by their own sermons. If you find yourself in that moment of hypocrisy and fear, wondering, I would say you're in good company. God has called people of similar stature in years gone by, and he's doing it now. And what is it all for? Well, verse 30, I think, kind of frames it out. They respond, concluding the way that the Jews did. And they sung a hymn. Most certainly they sung the Hillel Psalms from the Psalter. It's the teens, one teens, you know, 115-ish. They sing and then they go out to pray. It's intriguing that this is their union with Christ. And they go out in worship in prayer, and preparation for the suffering that would come. The challenge I would give us today is where I started. Our goal is to marvel at Jesus. And this supper is a tremendous opportunity for that. That he would give so freely to me something that cost him so much. Maybe I need to have my heart stirred just a little bit as well. that my love would increase and my worship would grow. Father, we do confess that because we think so highly of ourselves, we do not think very highly of Christ and we do not think very highly of your supper. And we ask that you would forgive us and that even now your spirit would work to equip us. And Lord, I would particularly pray that if there are any in here that doubt your promises, that your spirit would show them that you are trustworthy, for you are true, and Christ is real. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.